Welcome along to another Lockdown Football Podcast. I'm Will Downing alongside fellow commentators Mark Rodden, Stefan Jorni and Dimitro Zulai. It definitely feels like football is getting closer. Germany might be two weeks away from resuming play. But in the Netherlands, the season has been cancelled and there will be no champions. I'm accompanied today by my 2020 European Athletics Championships mug. That too has been cancelled. We'll always have Paris. We'll always have the mug. I really shouldn't ask you, gentlemen, but what have you been doing this week? Mark? Well, I'll tell you something I've enjoyed over the last couple of months is watching uh, the Friday Night Western on uh, the Irish language channel, TG Carr. You've had the professionals for a few dollars more with Clint Eastwood, the man who shot Liberty Valance, Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne, Guns of the Magnificent Seven last night, George Kennedy. It's going to be on a little later from now on, though, because uh, TG Carr have given a boost to everyone in Ireland, at least by announcing that over the next... A few weeks every Friday night, they'll be showing classic World Cup matches, including a lot of Ireland's games from uh, 1990 when we got to the quarterfinals, except, and I think this is a really good choice, Ireland against Egypt, which is uh, one of the worst games of all time. Not including Ireland-Egypt, and I remember it very well, the big procession that they used to have for Whitson every June in Yall was moved forward to lunchtime, so... Did that. I remember seeing my cousins there. Had a good chat. Got home. Really excited to watch the football because we're expected to roll Egypt over. This was obviously well in the primo Salah days. And it didn't happen, Mark, did it? No, it certainly didn't. Um, To be fair, I think we'll find a lot of Ireland's games in that World Cup weren't as good as uh, we remember. I don't think we were the most flamboyant side, to say the least. And uh, some of those games weren't too good. And I think we'll... uh, We'll realise that when we watch them back, if we didn't before, which of course we did. I mean, let's be honest, there's lots of nostalgia in Ireland and also England, I guess, over Italia 90 because both countries did really well. But the truth be told, it was probably one of the worst football tournaments ever. It was so low scoring, so many games went to penalties. And like a lot of the modern rule changes, when you think about it, the professional foul, the back pass rule, they all came in directly as a result of Italia 90. And of course, the golden goal, which we had for a while as well, all from this one tournament. Yeah, exactly. Kind of looking back on it now, it seems so outdated. And um, you just had some of those... uh as you say, terrible matches all through the tournament, really negative teams. Brazil in that World Cup, uh, for that example, uh, for, for example. Um, one of the things, of course, for Ireland was it was it was the journey. It was such a great occasion. Our first ever one off the back of uh, Euro 88. Um, I think it was Con Hulen, wasn't it, who said, you know, I missed the World Cup because I was in Italy at the tournament itself. You know, it was such a big event here. Um, and such a celebration, but uh, not too fondly remembered by uh, many people around the world. I mean, don't get me wrong. I have a lot of love for that tournament. It's one of my favourite tournaments of all time. Just so much around it. I remember the BBC used Killer from Adamski and also Venus from Don Pablo's Animals as their secondary theme tunes, if you like, and then there was Ness and Dorma, and of course Ireland doing so well, and all those World Cup songs that were out around the time as well. We should do something on Italian 90 very soon. When TG Carr is starting that series off, we'll do something big in Italian 90 that week, I think. It's a great idea. I mean, you have to say, the nostalgia football that we've had, BBC have been showing old World Cup and FA Cup classics. ITV are starting in a couple of weeks as well. They're going to start off uh, the, I think it's the second Saturday of May, Tea time, 6pm on a Saturday, with the 1987 FA Cup final. Coventry Tottenham, which for me is one of the greatest football games of all time. I was 11, I remember it really well. Stefan, how has your week been? Well, first of all, I have a question for Mark. What happened with Garmin, Mark? Uh, I just don't want to bore people with it anymore. You know, it's it's still going on in the background. You know, I'm, I'm still... Uh... I think I'll win a prize at some point after all this for my gardening. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, for the last uh, 10 days, I've been uh, a big fan of CNN, watching a lot of the uh, unpredictable press conference of Donald Trump on CNN with Anderson Cooper. Quite enjoyable, I have to say. Despite the climate, you know, in the States and what happened, but uh, yeah, it was uh, pretty unbelievable and surreal. For those listening, please do not drink bleach or disinfectant. It will not go well. Dimitro. You've been shaming us all the past few weeks. What have you been up to? Have I? Yes. How? 
Because you're doing constructive things, which is more than what any of us, okay, I'll be honest, me, have been doing. I just finished a few days ago a project that took me a while. I tried to translate some of the short stories of my favorite Argentinian writer, Eduardo Sacheri. Well, we're talking about current writers, of course, because in the past we had Borges, we had Cortázar in Argentina and other fantastic writers. But Sacheri is writing those short stories and they're more or less based on football or something related to football. So I just wanted to translate those. And I did 11 of them. So now I'm just talking to a friend of mine back in Ukraine and we're thinking of how we can proceed with that. But the whole thing of translating it is, well, is a lot of fun, I can tell you. Because I know you and a long-term colleague of yours, um, Alexei Ivanov, you've been translating a lot of football texts into Ukrainian for the for the market in that country. How difficult is Alex, that to Alex do? did a lot, actually. He mostly translates into Russian language. And actually, he translated uh, a book about non-league football, a, a whole of it. And uh, it is available somewhere online so people can read it. And he actually he wrote to an author of that book and told him about this. And the guy was just absolutely excited because it's a book about non-league football. And it's translated into a foreign language. So, yeah, it just, you know, if you like something, you just go and do it. And you don't probably even think, okay, how many people would want to read it? Because you want to read it and you want to share it with others. And that's it. There's a growing market in overseas football in Ukraine then. Well, I, I don't know if it's growing or not, because just like in any other country, you've got all those so-called big leagues being more popular than some other leagues that probably very often deserve much more attention. But I think it's a situation similar to the one you can encounter in so many countries, especially in Europe. Well, that gives us a lot to go on. And we haven't even gone to the week's news yet. We may as well start wrapping up now, to be honest with you. Um, In terms of the main news story heading into the weekend... In the Netherlands, the Eredivisie has been cancelled, ended with immediate effect. That's after the government decided that there would be no public events, including closed doors football, until the 1st of September. So the decision by the Dutch FA means that league leaders Ajax have been denied the title. Completely suspended. The same 18 teams in the top flight will be retained for next season. That means no relegation which means that Alan Pardew's Ado Den Haag are staying up, but also means that Ajax and Azad Alkmaar, who were locked at the top on 56 points, Ajax slightly better on goal difference, though Azad had beaten Ajax twice this season. No championship awarded. That is an extraordinary decision, isn't it? Well, first of all, I think that we are in a situation in so many leagues where probably you cannot find a decision that would suit absolutely everyone. But here, we already have a few clubs who are very unhappy. We're talking, of course, about the uh, top clubs in second division who are denied promotion now. We're talking about Utrecht, who are in the fight for the European place, let's say. And now what's going to happen? And also, I just don't understand, you know, when even Tadic, I think, was saying, oh, we should be champions because we have a better goal difference. But you lost to AZ twice, both home and away. So how can that make you champions? You are level on points. So that's another decision that probably seems to be right. Okay, no champion, but why would Ajax go directly to Champions League group stage? They are not any better than AZ in that particular situation. So it's a very complicated thing. There will be problem ahead because lawsuits are coming. Yeah, I think uh, the reason why Ajax was picked just for the reason it's Ajax, one of the biggest clubs uh, in the Netherlands and uh, surely has done quite well in the Champions League previously and it's a logical pick from KNVB but I understand AZ on the head-to-head record uh, beaten twice um, Ajax and comfortably uh, I was commentary, I was doing the commentary for the first game in AZ and uh, AZ was um, with a better team on the day and it's, it's definitely a question. If you look at the vote as well, 16 clubs voted for relegation, which obviously didn't take place. Nine against and nine abstained. And uh, it's a bit of a shamble. And uh, as Mito men- mentioned, there will be uh, legal action from Utrecht. But also AZ Akbar not happy about you know, the decision in terms of um, 
how European places have been uh, picked and, uh, and given to clubs. And uh, I mean, if you look at uh, Utrecht, it's, it's pretty embarrassing. They qualify for the final of the uh, Dutch Cup. And also they are one game less than uh, Willem II, which uh, took the last spot for the Europa League. And, and they won't be part of it. It's pretty hard on, you know, for if I was in charge of that club. But also uh, uh, the Graf Shop and Cambu. And you can see uh, those two clubs uh, doing quite well in the uh, SDVC, the second division, second tier of Dutch football. And uh, clearly, Cambu boss Enk De Jong expect the club to take legal actions and get KVB. You know, I, I can't quote him and De Jong. Uh, normally, I have all respect for the people of the KNVB, but that has now dropped far below zero. More to come from the Dutch, uh, the Dutch league and the, and the clubs, obviously. Two things on that, I suppose. Two teams that are happy about this decision. You men- mentioned uh, Willem Tway, a Dutch friend of mine who lives in Tilburg, sent me a video yesterday. Might be doing the rounds on social media. I don't know. Um, as you said, Willem Tway getting the uh, last European spot, having a great season, fifth in the table. 44 points the video i got sent was tons of cars and supporters uh in tilburg celebrating yesterday beeping horns because willem toyer are not a big club dwarfed by psv who are in eindhoven nearby and great um, achievement for them and also a miracle has happened it looks like the impossible job alan pardew has saved ado den hag he took over when they were uh in real trouble, second bottom. They're still second bottom. Seven points uh, from the relegation playoff spot. Um, but they will stay up. So he's done his job by hook or by crook. Divine intervention. Stefan it's, it's mentioned that nine clubs actually abstained. So I just don't understand how you can count that as if they're against relegation. They are not in favor. They are not against, as I understand. But still, well, they, they counted like that. But uh, the um, KVB uh, director, Eric Goode, said it was a painful decision to make, but you have to question how this team had been picked, especially Ajax, to play the, Europe, uh, the European Cup and Swedish Champions League. Um, that's, I can't understand that, because um, Ajax still have to play you know, some games to qualify for the group stage. But having said that, AZ, to, to me, like, deserve to play um, Champions next year, but not as many games as they should play, you know, the next phase, if when it takes place. But having said that, uh, what's remarkable, it's um, that create as well momentum for other leagues, like the Belgian leagues, which haven't made any decision yet uh, to, to start or to end the season. And that might, you know, re- raise, you know, a few issues for some of the clubs who decided initially to stop the league and, 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 and approving the decision by the uh, Pro League. But now... What happened to the, the uh, Dutch league could have, you know, serious consequences for the leagues. And uh, maybe um, this is the first signal of why football has to come back. Would it not have made sense? Because we are going to see Germany and Austria come back very soon, but they've handled the coronavirus crisis very, very well in those respective countries. If you've got two teams locked at the top, if you're going to decide that the season's going to end, could there not have been a position where just have a playoff between the top two? If they're locked on 56 points... You would still have champions. You would have a curtailed season. And don't forget, next season could be even more curtailed. We don't know what's coming down the line. The cup final, as will be the case in France, which we'll talk about shortly. The cup final also could have survived, which is Feyenoord against Utrecht. And supposedly Feyenoord are going to get the European ticket on that because they were the nominal away side in the cup final. None of this makes any sense whatsoever, surely. Yeah, absolutely nonsense. And I... Utrecht, you know, is looking at to take legal action as well, and uh, rightly so. For a club like Utrecht, having a chance to play European football, it's it's huge financially. I know, we, I think we talked about it previously that uh, the TV rights in the Netherlands are not, you know, big compared to the uh, well, to England, France, Italy, Spain, and, and and so on. But I think Ajax was meant to get 2.5 million from TV uh, uh, TV rights. The ticketing and it's it's important like fans, people coming to the games. That's vital for the uh, the clubs and also the training of the players, and um, and the current climate could create uh, some issues for some of the clubs. You know, in Ireland, not to be able to uh, showcase all the best players and uh, and really like going to the the uh, uh, the summer market, the mercato, and uh, not to be able to sell the players to the right value. Having said that, 
Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, how can AZ? I've not been topping up uh, Ajax to uh, to get the first, you know, champion spot. It's unbelievable. Just an interesting statistic there. You say about Ajax getting two point five million in TV money. Manchester City, in winning the title last season, picked up around one hundred and seventy to one hundred eighty million euros in prize money. A lot of which is TV money for winning the Premier League last season. The side that finished bottom, Huddersfield picked up around 110, 120 million euros. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Belgian TV deal generates a good bit more money than the Dutch one does. Yeah, we talk about 80 million, I think, for the uh, Belgium league. And uh, for, for the Dutch, it's way, way lower than that. And they're not happy. They signed a 12-year deal with uh, Fox uh, Sport in the Netherlands, which is a, you know, a 12-year deal. It's unimaginable, especially if you look at the current market in football. The figures have tendency, you know, to climb very quickly. And uh, but Ajax relies a lot on uh, on selling uh, players. And uh, if you look at every summer, they uh, I mean, look at last summer, De Jong going to Barcelona for huge fees, and they look at maybe Onana to be shipped, you know, to PAG. Uh, that's a model chosen by the Dutch clubs. They all like if you want uh, a huge academy in Europe. If you want at the professional level, when they send players at a young age and for huge fees, and that's why they they're so reliable to uh, French football, English football, Serie A, Spanish football to uh, uh, to contribute to the uh, economically to the clubs in the Netherlands. Yeah, well, that's uh, an interesting point you make as well. Will I think the new deal that's kicking in next season in Belgium is a hundred million, but obviously there's been big discussions between the Dutch and the Belgians about merging their league which would make it more attractive and and earn more money and hopefully from uh, their point of view make teams more competitive on a european level but then with this uh, coronavirus situation tv is having an effect on every decision as well because one of the tv companies in belgium is asking for money back if uh, the rest of the season doesn't go ahead um that's the reason why uh, Antwerp's president Paul Gaysons is looking for the season to continue. He says that the top three at the moment in in the league, Club Bruges, uh, Ghent, and Schalke, just want the season stopped because they'll uh, they'll get the loot, they'll get the uh, the most prize money and the um, the best European placings. And he feels that football should still continue in Belgium. There's a big meeting, I think, on Monday which um, should make things a bit clearer on that front. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I said what I meant, uh, the 80 million was for the previous season, just to be, uh, to be clear. Like. And just running through Belgium, a potential reversal. Their latest league conference has been bumped to next Monday, so they could potentially reverse the recommended decision that their league be suspended immediately, particularly if things kick off massively in the Netherlands. We could be back in Germany as early as the 9th of May. Clubs are back training. The Bundesliga hopeful that they'll be able to get games back on. They have a plan as to how many personnel will be needed within a stadium. They reckon just under 300 per match. No spectators, of course, but it would need government approval. That's the same situation in England. They're set to come back in mid-June, and there would be a plan here, not just that all games would be streamed, but that quite a few games in the Premier League would be broadcast on free-to-air television. Spain also want to resume in mid-June. They would do so with a different style of television coverage, a la NFL, where there are a lot more mics pointing towards the pitch so you can hear what the players are saying and so on. And they've already decided that there will be no further action in any sport in the country of Spain before Christmas with spectators present. So, how do you deal with that? Well, when the Danish Super League comes back, Michelin, who are currently top of the table, they want to introduce... Sunday night football in the movies, drive-in football, where you tune in your car radio, you get radio coverage on it, and you'll be able to watch on a big screen in the car park at the Michelin Stadium. And they reckon at the moment they've got facilities for 2,000 cars. And if the idea takes off, there are other venues within the city and within the region where they reckon they could have 10,000 cars and occupants watching live football. 
Sounds, sounds romantic. romantic. Sometimes you have to um, be very innovative, and uh, and uh, the Danish did it. I mean, well, they plan to do it anyway with Midland, and uh, it's 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 incredible. It's like uh, going to the movies in the state in the sixties, watching a movie outside with your car and uh, your girlfriend. I'm not sure about that, but uh, five lads in a car watching a game. Uh, it's going to be uh, interesting and. Uh, and I have a question. How can you how can you watch a game in a car with five guys or women can watch football, obviously, but uh, it's going to be a bit tricky because the angle could be uh, slightly wrong uh, where you parked and uh, you might have to uh, climb on top of your car to, uh, to watch a game properly. Social distancing. Surely you wouldn't have five people in a car. Well, I don't know. They'd have to be from the one family, wouldn't they? It has to be. But you know, do you think they will uh, they will meet the requirement to? Uh, if you're a big fan of uh, of your club, how many people can they uh, hold as well in the car park? I think seven thousand. Is it two thousand, three thousand? Yes, two thousand cars. It's two. It's two thousand cars. By presume, that's all. You know, that's surrounding the entire stadium. So they have to put up probably four, four big screens. I would imagine. Well, it's a great, it's a great idea. idea. Welcome to Hollywood, Will. It's also worth pointing out that every top division game in Denmark is shown live on TV anyway there. And also the second flight games, the first division there, a uh, couple are shown on TV, but the rest are all available on live streams. France are looking to resume with both of their cup finals. The French Football Federation president, Noel Legray, said the French Cup final between Paris Saint-Germain and Saint-Étienne could be played on either the 13th or 20th of June, followed three days later by the League Cup final between Olympic Lyonnais and Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah, that's correct. Noel Legray, to the uh, president for the uh, French Association, uh, decided at a meeting last week, uh, or this week, uh, with LFP, the... Uh, French Professional Football League and uh, they more or less found an agreement to start back on the 13th of June and well in, in 17th of June will be more or less uh, the league one being back uh, on track and then starting with the two cups the French Cup as you mentioned um, PAG against Saint-Etienne and then followed by the uh, Coupe de la Ligue uh, between PAG and Lyon and the reason why the French Cup will go at first it's uh, he just want to honor um, the non-league football in France amateurs, and uh, the desire in France is really uh, finishing the league. Obviously, for uh, to save some of the clubs financially, uh, there's troubles in League One and League Two, and um, because some of the TV rights, as we mentioned before, are not been distributed to other clubs equally. I mean, as I say, like some of the clubs could have, you know, get could have got 91% uh, of the TV rights. Some PSG got only 50% of the TV money. But the idea is to finish it. But he also mentioned the only way to start uh, the league and to play those two games for the two cup games is to get the approval of the uh, uh, prime minister of the government and also the uh, minister minister of sports. And uh, so it's a wide and see games. The good thing is in in France the uh, cases are declining. Hopefully, uh, will be the case you know in two months' time. And this was supposed to be the day of the French Cup final as well. It was supposed to be on today. Correct. That's correct, Will. And uh, it's a French Cup. It's a big event in France. And uh, and it was meant to be a big game between PSG and Saint-Étienne. Saint-Étienne, a historic club in France, um, who lost a final against um, uh, Bayern Munich. And they had a famous game against Dynamo Kiev uh, in France. It was a brilliant game. I'm sure Mitro remember that. That's, that's a massive game. And also PSG Lyon. Uh, Lyon, not... Uh, not doing too well in the league. It's important for to get a trophy this season for Jean-Michel Olas and uh, Rudy Garcia. So just another thing worth mentioning on France, Will, um, I suppose everyone just gives their best wishes to um, Montpellier's junior Samba, 23-year-old midfielder who's um, very ill in hospital at the moment with coronavirus. So uh, again, puts uh, all these types of uh, conversations about when we restart leagues into perspective, I think. It's all very true, and we do wish him the best. I know a lot of people are just hoping football will come back, so at least in the midst of all this madness, which definitely looks in some countries as if it's going to go on until at least September, that there might be some little semblance of normality and that people might be able to watch some live football, although, of course, whatever football they get is going to be anything but normal. Belarus plays on the crowds. They're a lot lower now because the cases have gone up. It is weekend six. Three teams are tied at the top, Slutsk, Vitebsk and Torpedo Belaz. They all play on Sunday, 
this weekend. And currently, there's one point dividing the top seven. But because the crowds have gone down, Dimitro, and because of the heightened popularity of the Belarusian League, because no one else in Europe is playing at the moment, they're filling some of the grounds with Taylor's dummies, with spectators' faces printed out and, and put on the heads. Well, yeah, but judging by the quality of some of the games, they might replace footballists with dummies pretty soon. Sometimes you do feel like down in a double dose of bleach when you watch uh, that league. But still, that's the only one available so far in Europe because Faroe Islands, they might start their league on the 8th of May. So there is a promise there. And as for Germany, because you, you did mention Germany and it's really important to know that they're very cautious about it. They say if the government allows, if, if, and if, because they do have a plan, right? Like Germans should, but they still would refer to government in any kind of decision. And that's very important because that's this is a government that did well what they were supposed to do, unlike so many countries, unlike Spain, unlike UK, and unlike United States, of course. So... When we talk about it, we can be optimistic, but we also understand that it doesn't depend on leagues, on their presidents, it doesn't depend on clubs. If the government allows it, it will go on. Hopefully it will go on. But as for Belarus, sometimes you wish it just stopped. Well, there's been quite a bit of movement in international football as well. Michael O'Neill has departed as Northern Ireland boss. We'll do that in a separate programme, actually, because there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, Phil Neville also going as the England women's boss. Now, he was due to leave after Euro 2021, but that now has been bumped a year to 2022, and it's been decided that his contract won't be extended for that. He guided England to the World Cup semi-finals in 2019. Quite a run. They were beaten by the United States in that in an epic semi-final. Under Neville, England also won the She Believes Cup for the first time. But since the World Cup, and in fact, taking in the last two games of the World Cup, England have only won three of the last 11 matches, seven defeats out of 11 as well. You see, on paper, that looks like success. But I just get a strong feeling, gentlemen, that Phil Neville, to me, despite being a Champions League winner, having played in one of the most successful club sides that English football realistically has ever seen, he never, to me, seemed that welcome in the women's game. Discuss. Well, uh, it's not even about being in the women's game or uh, men's game. It doesn't matter what he won as a player. The thing is, what kind of manager is he? Is he a good manager or not? And the first question I had, why was he ever appointed? Because it's one of the top sides in women's football. So it's probably a bit, let's say, easier to get to the semi-final with that team than with the men's team. But I don't really see how winning Champions League qualifies you for being a manager in any kind of team, even in League 2. Yeah, I mean, uh, we can always talk about Phil Neville uh, not... I don't think his tracking record, you know, can speak for himself. But uh, had you know, pretty awful experience in Valencia with his brother. If you remember, he took them, you know, a while. Maybe Mitro can be more specific with figures, but it took him months, you know, to get the first win under his belt with Gary Neville. Um, well, I can tell you that the happiest day for all Valencia fans was when Gary Neville finally took the flight back to Manchester. <laughs> Surely it was a pretty awful time for Valencia and they were fighting for relegation as well. And uh, and then he took the job um, recently. Uh, I know he did quite well at the World Cup uh, in France, but the overall, it, I don't think he's been pretty successful. And you can question also his appointments. Uh, was it political? I don't know. I know you, I, we discussed it previously, but uh, I think Mark mentioned he was not even the shortlist for the, for the job initially. And... Uh, well, I think it's pretty disappointing and, and not also like appointing um, a woman at the head of the uh, the uh, women's team in, in England. It's pretty, I think it's pretty disappointing because there's definitely some uh, successful manager in the women's game in England. I know they, they put a, a list of f- f- women's manager like uh, the coach from Chelsea. I mean, we're talking about Laura, Laura Harvey, I think, Emma Hayes, uh, Jill Ellis. Why not appointing them two years ago? And... Uh, and having a kind of a long-term plan with uh, the Scotches. I mean, it was a surprise a, a surprise appointment a few years ago. 
it's logical that you will step out and uh, we need a new face uh, in the uh, English uh, football game for the women's team. I mean, it's worth pointing out that Phil Neville was appointed a pretty much short notice. Mark Sampson had been the England boss and likewise had been quite successful, but was dismissed due to a number of controversies. There were disciplinary, quite a few disciplinary cases against him. Despite the fact that, I mean, Phil Neville guided England to that very, very long run, you don't think his tenureship has been that successful? I think he uh, brought a lot of problems on himself. Um, you know, as always happens these days when he was appointed... Someone trolled through his uh, Twitter account, found some comments he'd made that weren't too smart, um, put him on the back foot straight away. I think the FA needed a big name after the way uh, Mark Sampson uh, left. I, I, it always struck me that he was—he um, felt under pressure and he felt like he had something to prove. Fairly defensive a lot of the time from the off. And that suggests to me that he was an inexperienced manager and that was a very, very big job for him to take on. Some of the comments he's made, some of the interviews he did during the World Cup, calling the the uh, third place playoff game a nonsense. Back in September last year, he came out with a comment, you know, thank your lucky stars, I'm here in this job. I don't think he'll be missed all that much. I think he he, he promised a lot more than he delivered. And I think, you know, the bigger question, Will, it's about, you know... Um why don't we have more uh, women's manager into the game, even for the male or female's game? But uh, we, we had experience in France with Corignac taking over, I think, one of the rare uh, women's manager taking a job in a professional game uh, in a men's team, Clermont-Ferrand in League Two. I think she had two seasons. She did quite well. She finished in you know, a mid-table and then she got a job at the uh, uh, women's, uh, the French women's national team. Well, she, she struggled at the World Cup in France. Um, lost against the US, but surely there has to be manager, women's manager in England who can definitely take, take the job this time and could have taken the job previously. We were looking at you, maybe uh, Casey Stoney from Manchester United. Obviously, Jill, Jill Ellis from the US could be a strong candidate, you know, taking England. So, so you know, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge football association. And, uh, and as I mentioned, uh, Emma Hayes, you know, from Chelsea. So there are a serious candidate in the... Um, in the women's world or management world, who could do, uh, who has exp- well, they have experience and they can deliver and they know uh, and the game, you know, inside out in England and, and obviously internationally because those 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 uh, manager uh, they have played European football with those teams as well. Well, Hope Powell had taken charge of England for 15 years and had been very successful herself. She departed in 2013. She's currently in charge of Brighton. Emma Hayes is at Chelsea. Vicky Jepson is the coach of. Liverpool, Casey Stoney at Manchester United, who've come into the uh, WSL in the past couple of seasons. Karen Hills is at Tottenham Hotspur. And the England assistant coach, who I've actually worked with in last season's International Champions Cup, the women's edition, Bev Priestman. They potentially will be all candidates. But of course, as you always say, there doesn't need to be a rush to appoint a new England women's boss because they're not liable to play potentially for the rest of the year. And he'll be in place for another year and there is a thought that Phil Neville may not have any more games as England boss anyway, because it may be a while before we see women's international football back. Well, as, your, as Stefan and Dimitro touched on, appointing a guy with very little coaching experience is such a gamble because that England job is a huge job now. They're, they're expected to win tournaments. Uh, they're getting massive crowds. You look at the World Cup last year, great crowds. Um, and the standard of the Women's Super League is uh, improving all the time as well. Really good football on display. And it doesn't matter whether it's the men's game or the women's game. If you appoint someone who doesn't really have the experience, you're always taking a bit of a risk. You know, it had been a couple of years since um, Phil Neville had, had done any coaching at all since his Valencia experience. Brief spell with Man United as well on the uh, coaching bench. Again... I think uh, it was a gamble that didn't really work out for the FA. And especially as Mark mentioned, you know, the, um, uh, the women's game is, you know, has been growing for, for quite a while. And uh, especially at the European level, in, Eng- in, in the US, we know it's, it's huge. But in Europe, for the last five or six, seven years, we can see that through the league, like in France, in Germany or in England. But also um, uh, the caliber of the players, you know, moving from one club to the other. There's more and more transfers. The, the, the women's are, you know, getting well paid uh, now. Uh, you can see clubs like Lyon or in England 
they they uh, they all really uh, are real professional players, and uh, they have to be recognized. And also, the Champions League uh, created uh, or enjoying uh, uh, crowds. Lyon was crowned, you know, recently. But you have clubs like Wolfsburg, or obviously in England, win all the clubs. But there is desire, I think, to see uh, uh, more uh, women's football on TV. So now another potential gamble coming on the way. Newcastle United, Mike Ashley set to sell the club after 13 years of ownership. And at the moment, in pole position to take over, Amanda Staveley's PCP Capital Partners, along with the Rubin Brothers and the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. For many reasons, a potentially controversial bid because of Saudi Arabia's human rights record. And it's been coloured a little bit in the past couple of days by one of the major overseas Premier League TV rights holders, BN Sports, writing to every Premier League club saying this is a very bad idea because they have a major argument with Saudi Arabia over their channels being pirated across the Middle East. Well, that's one of the reasons that you probably get tired of Premier League and what is happening in there. Well, it's nothing new. We've had those questionable owners getting into many other English clubs. And obviously, Newcastle supporters will be probably the only ones who will be happy about it, who will support all that. But otherwise, it's just another story that puts you off of the Premier League. And that's it. Yeah, it's... uh echo what Dimitro was saying there um, dislike the way football has become a, a plaything um, for various billionaires tradition counts for very little at the moment as well it's just on a whim someone can decide to pump millions into a club for whatever reason and uh, some of those reasons are uh, not very honourable either but as Dimitro said, Newcastle fans are going to be delighted um, to get rid of Mike Ashley because all they want is a team that plays good, entertaining football. They have a lot of good, honest, hard-working pros now. The the squad are popular, but growing up uh, watching Newcastle in the 90s in particular, you remember them for their flamboyant football. You know, uh, Ginola, Philippe Albert, all those great goals they scored. And uh, there was a great piece in The Athletic recently um, on uh, Newcastle's promotion season 2010-2011 when Chris Hewton was badly treated again by the club after uh, several other um, managers before him were badly treated under that ownership. And, um, you know, Joey Barton talking about pre-season, Mike Ashley wanting to play golf with a couple of the players and saying, like, you know, you can't uh, you can't curry favour by playing a, a game of golf with us. You know, he's um, not an owner that's very popular, and uh, at least from that point of view, Newcastle will be or Newcastle supporters will be happy to see a change. You know, looking at uh, what Mark was saying, yes, it's it's um, it's pretty sad for football, but you, despite you know the issues drained you know by um, Saudi Arabia and human rights and so on. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're allowed and entitled to, to buy a club they want to. And my, my concern is to see like groups like um, like City, for example, owning, you know, many clubs or Red Bull owning, you know, a lot of clubs. It's like you you would be ending up with a um, huge organization. Could have, you know, conflict of interest playing at European level. You could have Salzburg playing against Red Bull uh, Leipzig in the European Cup and Champions League. So... That's an issue to me um, uh, going forward. But just looking at the Newcastle um, uh, situation, we talk about you know deal of uh, 340 million. Mike Ashley, uh, I think that group it's a consortium it's called FIP. It's a private investment fund um, from Saudi Arabia, and and the Prince Mohammed bin Salman is behind it. I think it's it's about the image of Saudi Arabia, and there's a lot of political uh, background behind it, but. Already we're talking about, you know, big names coming to the club. The fans will be happy, as Mark, you know, said, but Allegri uh, is a name mentioned a few times. Also, like Arturo Vidal, big players, they're prepared to spend a lot of money. So for the fans, yeah, it's great. But yeah, if you if you have some morale and ethic, but do you think the Premier League will stop the deal? I don't think so. 
The Newcastle United Supporters Club uh, have done a survey of their members and they found that 96.7% of Newcastle fans are in favour of the deal going through. Now, how much of that is to do with a lot of money coming into the club, no matter where the money is coming from, or the fact that Mike Ashley would no longer be involved? You can determine that yourself. But it seems locally there is a major amount of support for the move to come through. And supposedly this morning, according to the Newcastle Chronicle, I'm just looking at their site, Mercia Pochettino is now being very strongly linked with the club. But, you know, are they adding two and two and coming up with... Yeah, and Rafael Benitez as well is linked to the club. And uh, there's a lot of talks. And I can tell you, agents are looking at, you know, quite closely uh, the sale in, at Newcastle. And I can guarantee you, like, CVs, phone calls will take place pretty quickly and they will move to make sure, you know, players... Because money will be available there. And uh, as you know, agents work on commission. And uh, they would be pretty inclined to, uh, to move the players over there. But quid, another question will be Brexit. That's another question. How will it impact football as itself in England? Because players coming from the European Union uh, will need a work permit. And uh, there will be some limitation about signing players from Europe. And Ireland, ultimately. Well, in terms of work permits, don't forget that David Pizarro was turned down for work permit in England, the Chilean international who played a long time for Roma uh, before a, a brief spell with Manchester City. Vest was refused work permit. He had to go through a third party ownership to go to West Ham before going to Manchester United. There was an issue with that. Oh, I'm just wondering how many of those 96.7% of Newcastle supporters actually voted for Brexit? Oh, <laughs> maybe all of them. <laughs> it's hard to know. This is a pure hypocrisy, you know? Yeah. We don't give a monkey about anything. We just need money in our club. But you'll be just another circus, but on a higher scale. And that's it. Because there is only one top prize in football, unfortunately, for all those big money sponsors, you know, they're coming into clubs. And, well, it's just like you have them at Mon City, you have them at Chelsea, you have them elsewhere. So... Why would Newcastle suddenly be better than him on the pitch? That's a question I have. Because Mauricio Pochettino, oh yeah, he won so many trophies in his career. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, but he made Tottenham Hotspur a league contender. He got them into a Champions League final. It's not, it's not all about trophies. Was there in 2011, they were Champions League quarterfinalists. And I remember Sir Alex Ferguson saying, Spurs are playing the best football in the country now. They were close to Mon United. Of course, they didn't win the title. But when I hear that, Mauricio Pochettino, they were a good side under Harry Redknapp as well. But no one mentioned that because Harry Redknapp was English, apparently. <laughs> I think they, they had Gareth Bale and Luka Modric back then, didn't they? they yeah, yes, they but developed. they developed. They developed, didn't they, while Gareth they were at Tottenham? Bale on the right, he was tactically inept. And when Willis Borges came and played Gareth Bale on the right, he was expanding players' horizon. Are you make, making a case for Harry Redknapp here? No, I'm just saying that sometimes I don't understand all that thing, you know, about English football and uh, the way they think because apparently they vote to leave European Union and then they get all those managers in place and saying they're better than ours, even though some of the local managers in place are pretty good as well. And now with Newcastle, well, who was the manager back in the 90s when they Title contenders. Kevin Keegan. Yes, Kevin Keegan. Yeah, they did have some foreign players, but they also have some good local players. And it was a fantastic side. Their game right. against Man United and Philippe Albert scored their goal. Yeah, Aspria, David Gennard, they're a pretty good team. And Alan Shearer leading the... Um... And they played in the Champions League as well. And, and then it was Bobby Robson who took them to the Champions League as well. And to the second group stage of the Champions League. And I know it well because Dino McKeel were in the same group with them and Greg Bellamy scored their goal against Feyenoord in Rotterdam to put them through to the second uh, group stage. So <laughs> the success they had in the last, well, 30 years, it was with Kevin Kagan and Bob Robson in the league at least and in Europe. But is it not remarkable, though, after the seasons that they'd had, they were runners-up in the Premier League two seasons in a row, 96, 97, and then two seasons in a row after that, they reached the FA Cup final, beaten by Arsenal and Manchester United and those. There were the long European runs. The win over 
Barcelona, the hat-trick for Espria, the famous 3-2 win at the start of the 97-98 season. Is it not remarkable how Newcastle have built themselves up remarkably quickly, had done a terrific job in doing so. They were the entertainers in the early days of the newly formed Premier League, if you like. And then it was just all frittered away and the, you know, a couple of relegations and it just all went so badly wrong. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I think, you know, sometimes, you know, football club, if, same case for Manchester United. And uh, when you have been successful in its own rights, you know, for so many years and um, a new manager come in and uh, a, new, a new coach, you know, comes in and then you have to make right decision about uh, players uh, wrong signings and things can derail pretty quickly and uh, and you can see with David Moyes taking over Alex Ferguson um, even though he was not giving maybe the, the time but time is the essence in football and uh, especially for big clubs like uh, Manchester United or, or City or Chelsea you have to deliver pretty quickly and and things can go, you know, badly wrong, really badly wrong and Newcastle went down uh, we know that, went to the second division but uh, a football club is not about the, the coach and the money you're going to put on the table. It's about, you know, having policies in place in terms of recruitment and also at the academy level. You have to look at the club uh, as a whole, basically. That's all fine, but surely there is a difference between, you know, Manchester United having their lack of success, which for them is not winning the league and it's just missing out in the Champions League, for example, but they're still a top seven, top eight side. Whereas Blackburn, we can mention as well, and Newcastle, had grown to a point where they're title contenders. Blackburn won the league. Newcastle ought to have won the league, but didn't. But for them, the fall has been a lot more spectacular because not only are they not a side in the top half of the table, but they've both suffered relegation. And in the case of Blackburn, a couple of relegations. But, but Moment United went through the same patch you know, a few uh, few decades ago and uh, fighting for to avoid relegation. In the 70s. Yeah, in the 70s, when you change ownerships. And uh, Mike Ashley is... Uh, you know, they, they, Mike Ashley, what, well, in his mind, was like buying young players, promising players, and sell them. He was there to make, you know, some, uh, yeah, he was there for trading players. His idea is not to have Newcastle doing well or, or playing in Europe. That's not the idea of Mike Ashley. That's my, you know, my point of view, but my opinion. But I think he's just there to make money. That's what he wants to do, make money. You know, how many uh, young players coming through Newcastle have been sold to other clubs and, uh, that's what he wants to do. And uh, is there is a real desire from the top to uh, compete uh, and to win trophies? I'm not so sure. Do you feel then that there's been a difference in what, you know, Blackburn, Newcastle, and I'll throw in Leeds United as well of the late 90s, early noughties wanted to do, which was be successful, whereas subsequent regimes, do you feel that they've been trying to make a profit instead of being successful on the pitch? Correct. Absolutely correct. At that time, you know, when Blackburn won the league, I think Alan Sherwood, the the, the, the striker, and uh, and there's Colin Sherwood as well was playing. There was there was clubs wanted to challenge in you know, the leagues. But now, if you look at England, a change with the Premier League uh, era, money talks, and uh, a club like Blackburn, I find it very difficult to uh, you know to play in the Premier League, and uh, for financial reason, you need to uh, uh, to attract you know players and. Uh, I mean, Man United is a big club, Man City now, because the, the money has been injected to the, to, uh, to the organization. But uh, smaller clubs who have, you know, some history uh, in England could be, you know, could find it very challenging you know, to, uh, to, well, to live in the Premier League and, and the expectations. And um, it's, it's very challenging. And the industry has changed completely uh, uh, since, you know, the Premier League uh, uh, moved into that uh, multi-billion, you know, industry. It's like entertainment, in fact. You know, I don't compare to Hollywood, but it's more or less that, that. And that's what, you know, the Premier League has been so good to market the product abroad. And that's the most powerful league in the world. It doesn't mean it's the best league in the world, but the most powerful, yes, it is, uh, financially. Just a few things about Blackburn, first of all. It was a local businessman who was financing the site. It wasn't someone from abroad. He wanted that club to win the league, and they won the league. And that was probably the best thing that would happen to them. But, of course, as Stefan mentioned, the situation has been changing as well financially, first of all. The league has changed a lot, even from 95 when Blackburn won it. So now when we're in it, we just look at all those owners, and 
we do wonder what do they want. But the thing is that Newcastle fans have been wondering for years what does Mike Ashley want. So we had Cashley call. Now we might have Mike Cashley because he finally will sell the club and he will get his money. But he didn't give anything to the club. Anything. They were bringing in plays. They were bringing monages. And what happened? Nothing. They were mostly fighting relegation in the Premier League. They, well, they did manage to get promoted quickly from the uh, championship. But there was no strategy in the club. Nothing behind it. So no matter how much money you have, you must have that strategy. And even that doesn't guarantee you anything because I'm sure that PSG would love to win the Champions League, but they still haven't and we don't know when they will. Chelsea wanted it badly and they did manage it once and it was probably the ugliest winner of all in the history of the European Cup. But, well, at least they won it. So, again, when we say, oh, fans want to see fancy football, well, that amount of money will not guarantee you that. Because Chelsea were absolutely disgusting to watch for so many years. And they had a lot of money. Roberto Mancini's Mon City, even though they had that title with the Aguero's goal in the last kick of the game, they're absolutely horrible as a football side. Horrible. So, And they had a lot of money to pump into the team. So in the end, well, it's just about having the strategy and getting right people in. If that happens at Newcastle, then probably we'll have another exciting side. But I, I wouldn't really expect that to happen. <laughs> no, I was enjoying that. Um, yeah, it could go either way with Newcastle, I suppose. Um, careful what you wish for, you never know. You look at some of the teams that have gone through the owners and gone through different regimes. You mentioned the way Blackburn fell off. Um, that was a managerial change with uh, Kenny Dalglish leaving, starting that. Um, and then big, big clubs like uh, Notts Forest and Leeds, I'm thinking of, that are just in the doldrums and can't get out of the championship because of just failed attempts at promotion. And then different owners come in, different ideas, hundreds of changes to personnel, and it doesn't work out. So, um, yeah, money doesn't guarantee success, as uh, PSG are, are finding in France I don't think they're even enjoying winning all those titles in France all that much. The one they want is the Champions League, and so far they haven't come close. Sorry, Mark, I just uh, it's a question for everyone, because there, there, there has been the talk about so-called Super League. But again, in that Super League, there will be only one winner, one champion, and you will not go anywhere. You will not go to the Champions League, and fourth place will not be a prize, uh, no matter how much Arsene Wenger would want it. So do you think like teams like PSG, even Mon City, a- any team, uh, Bayern Munich would be happy to finish 7th, 8th, ninth for a few years in a row? Whereas what you have in the Champions League at the moment for some sides reaching the quarterfinal is an achievement, reaching the semi-final is an achievement and you have the excitement in a normal season of the rounds building up from post-Christmas when realistically for a lot of us who work in the Champions League that's when most of the excitement is and it's where most of the interest is it's interesting of course you mentioning Jack Walker there a few moments ago being a local businessman who wanted to see his hometown club do so well with Blackburn Rovers that was very much the case when Newcastle United came to the fore under Sir John Hall who again was a local businessman and when Leeds won the league in 1992 I can't even remember who the owner of the club was at the time. It was just a really well-constructed side under Howard Wilkinson. And you can say very much the same for Norwich City of the same era under Dave Stringer and then Mike Walker. I I couldn't tell you who the Norwich City owner was back then because, you know, the sums of money were so insignificant at the time compared to where they are now. But of course, as you're mentioning we'll say the likes of Benfica and Porto, if they were involved in a European Super League and a few 20 clubs, well, somebody has to finish bottom. Somebody has to be in the bottom half of the table and it's not going to be a lot of fun for those. And after a couple of seasons, it's going to get very, very old, isn't it? Yeah, but the key things, as you mentioned, Will, uh, it's, I think ownership is key, the president and, uh, and the coach, and uh, we, we lost touch you know, with the base and uh, not having uh, local players coming through or the the president, the chairman, the owner of the club, not being a local guy as well. There's no like feeling or, you know, to the club. It's, you know, those clubs in England become multinationals and they're there to make money and to attract, you know, players and to cut off as well the transfer market. 
that's why you know some some clubs have, have you know disappeared you know from the uh, English landscape in, at the, in the Premier League, and obviously money talks. Sheffield United, the minute is uh, is a bit of a you know a surprise you know story, but I can guarantee you in two or three or four years time they won't be there. You know it's it's not sustainable to, to the level, but Newcastle will be part of it. You know I think you know what they will do they will inject a lot of cash to it. They will attract, you know, players, even though it's the north of England. Because players, you know, don't get me wrong, when they move to a club, they look at, first of all, the money. They look at, you know, the manager and the, the club. And uh, in the Champions League, are you playing European football? No, but money will have to play a huge part of it to attract the best. And the manager will be, uh, will be a huge part of the success of the club. Having said that, they will, if you look at, you know, the format of the English clubs like Chelsea, Manchester City, they buy a lot of players at you know top level players but also at the youth level and then they send them loan and um, and they cut off really like the market across Europe worldwide and that's that's you know I would say you know that will default in a way um, yeah. the transfer market every well, no, no, it default the, the transfer market every summer rules, um, to limit the number of players can go out on loan but uh, we've talked a lot about uh, our clubs bringing young players through this kind of thing we talked about the difficulties that the uh, Dutch teams have had. And I just think back and maybe this situation we're going through right now could see some sort of positive change. I don't know. But I think back to Ajax last season, everyone loving what they achieved. And we loved it because of the football they played, because of the history behind the club, the tradition, and all those great young players. I'm just looking back you know, thinking about that 95 final, that great IX team won. And that was, to me, like a a, a symbol of, of the way modern football was going to go. They had a great young side and then completely dismantled that summer. And uh, we see that so often. But the quarterfinals that year, Bayern Munich, Ajax, Barcelona, Milan, Benfica, PSG, Hijuk Split... And Gothenburg, you know that's that just shows you how how far football has gone the other way. You would never like obviously you would expect an English team to be in there maybe as well most years, but some of those teams will never get near the last eight of the Champions League anymore, which I find a, a real shame. Yeah, because the thing is, uh, it was around the same time Bosman case happened, and it was the first bomb that started destroying European football as we knew it back in the nineties. And also, it's interesting that Stefan mentioned Hollywood and entertainment, and that's what Monsetti intend to do, because there is a talk of them buying Nancy, the French club, yep. to make it a part of their city football group. They have clubs in different countries, and they're talking about creating something that would be compared to Disneyland, you know, like a franchise. So yeah, that's it's not even about football for them now. They were talking about entertainment. And again, well, <laughs> I can only get back to that Beto Mancini's Man City. They, they were not entertaining at all. They had to wait until Pep Guardiola joined him as a manager to become entertaining and also winning titles. Because no matter how much they will talk about entertainment, if they don't win that title in the Premier League, if they don't win the Champions League, I don't think they can... Expect anything. Now, there are going to be Manchester City and Chelsea fans who, if they're listening to this, would say, we don't care. We've been successful. We've won the league. We were the best team of that particular season. We won most points. The league table never lies. We don't care. Yeah, but title doesn't give you um, everything. You know, it's about the style. And people remember, even though Man City are winning the title, say, you look, remember, you know, when we play, you know, in the Champions League that way, you know, we, we, it was magnificent and the uh, title doesn't, doesn't win everything and doesn't certainly win, you know, the heart of the uh, the, uh, the fans, but of the people. You could see like, yeah, you can win early and win titles, but you won't be remembered historically in football for, yeah, the title, but not for the uh, the style of play. Um, you, if you, uh, you cover, you know, the league and I think, I think that's, you know, that's, it's difficult, yeah, for a fan. Yeah, you want you want titles, and you can see Arsenal. But Arsenal and the Wenger, the they hate ever Arsenal. When they were not winning titles, they were still playing, you know, a certain style of football, a brand of football. And 
the fans, you know, were exciting to the to, to the games. I know they didn't win title, but still there was a, a style of football and uh, it was pretty enjoyable for everyone to watch Arsenal playing. I mean, if you look at Chelsea a couple of years ago during Mourinho's second era and the years around it, you look at the clubs that were, you look at the players that were there, the likes of De Bruyne, Lukaku, even Mo Salah, and they got very little game time and ended up having to move back abroad. In the case of Lukaku, who was on loan at Everton and West Brom, De Bruyne ended up going to the Bundesliga for a couple of seasons and doing very well there. Mo Salah ending up at Roma and doing excellently and then coming back to England and being very successful with Liverpool. Having worked in a few Chelsea games this season, mainly because of the transfer ban that they had, but it's actually been wonderful to see Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount, Callum Hudson-Odoi coming through. You know, young players, young English players who have finally for the first time, Ruben Loftus-Cheek as well, who for the first time in a few seasons, young English players have been given a chance at Chelsea. Actually, it's been brilliant to see and their football's been really entertaining. It's been very enjoyable to watch. Well, I've done a lot of games uh, this season and I can tell you, I, I was looking forward to doing Chelsea games and it's something that hasn't happened for 15 years since Claudio Ranieri was a manager. They really were beautiful to watch. Uh, and also, we, we can mention a manager here. Because, yeah, we're talking about young players, but we have a young manager who did that season at Derby County now. He wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the transfer ban, of course. There would be someone else sitting there and talking about results and how fans want to see trophies and all that stuff. But at the moment, it's just some good football from them. I would still maintain... There would be fans of bigger clubs who would be listening to us for the last 30 minutes and saying, fine, you're wrong. Well, they don't care, of course. And I think the whole point here is that elite group of those who don't care cannot get any bigger because in the end, they will have to be fifth or sixth for a few years in a row. And then it's difficult not to care anymore. But I think, you know, football has to provide emotions. And if you don't have that, I mean, you can win ugly. Uh, we've seen it with Mourinho and it was not brilliant to, to watch, but uh, winning titles, it's it's not pretty. And you can say, oh, yeah, and they won. But I, I, look, I was I was watching uh, this week uh, Netherlands against West Germany and um, the uh, final, the World Cup final. And you remember, obviously, uh, Netherlands playing such a brand of football. But yeah, Germany won the World Cup, but West Germany won the World Cup. But it's really Netherlands who won people's heart luck and because for providing such you know uh, such great football to watch it was uh, it was joy and and, uh, and you can see that across you know the World Cups at the top of football in 1982 France against you know West Germany again it, it was uh, such an epic game and and through the years and you have games or even teams will provide you uh, something special Liverpool in Champions League uh, in the league and I mean it depends. There's a lot of factors to take into account, but winning is not everything. I mean, I would have to say, I've worked on the Belgian League and the World Feed, like you, Mark, since 2014, and then had worked on it previously for the old Satanta Africa in the 2010 season when, you know, Lukaku was 16 years old and won the, you know, the Golden Bull, the Top Scorers Award, as a 16-year-old with Anderlecht. Uh, 2011 was the season when Genk won the title when they'd De Bruyne, They'd Vossen, they'd Courtois as an 18-year-old who was only supposed to be the third or fourth choice keeper that season, had to play the first game in his emergency, turned out to be quite good. There is a brilliant delight, season after season, in the Belgian League, in the Dutch League, which I work on quite a bit, in the Bundesliga, which I'm a big fan of. Every club has an ethos, not just that they want to be successful, but they want young players to come through. And it's what every club all the fans of every single club in those leagues, they want to see exciting young players come through. They want to see the next generation and they want them to play in Anderlecht, despite the bad season they've had down in eighth. Something like a dozen of their squad are 20 years old or younger. And it's how delighted we all were to see that Ajax team of last season go so far and come within a kick of reaching the Champions League final. And it was a shame to see De Jong and De Ligt be picked away by richer clubs in the summer. But there was such a delight in seeing Ajax go so far and, you know, reminding us of that brilliant team 
of the mid nineties and for older people, that great team of the of the seventies. There there is an ethos in those countries, and not just there, but also Austria. I mean Salzburg, despite the corporate nature of their side, they had built a young team of exciting players playing really, really good football. But we're talking here about Ralph Rangnick being behind all that for Salzburg. So we were talking about strategy, and there was a man there for Salzburg who was thinking about it, who was planning it ahead, and that's why they had that. And they were losing in the last leg or just last round of the qualification for Champions League for, for so many seasons in a row. With all that money they had, they still couldn't make that step. So eventually they uh, did get to the group stages. And yeah, they had a great season uh, this year because they did scare Liverpool a bit, (laughs) especially before that last uh, game of the group stage. But that's because they didn't only spend money, they had brains behind it. But but I think, you know, circumstances would dictate also the... um... Uh, the use. I'm not going about the Premier League. Uh, like Chelsea, there was no ch- more or less choices, you know, for um, Frank Lampard, and uh, he used some of the young players uh, at Derby County, which you know he brought back at Chelsea, and uh, and they managed to deliver to some extent in the Premier League. But uh, unfortunately, uh, maybe uh, we're too romantic, and uh, we <laughs> we love you know certain level of you know, certain brand of football, but. Uh, Unfortunately, the way, you know, as Will mentioned, the word corporate, yeah, it's corporate football and, uh, and money drains, will drain uh, more and more uh, top-level players coming to the club, which, and as the fans cannot relate to it, but they, they, they want, you know, big stars and big stars, you know, needs, um, and the only way to attract it, you know, to attract them, you know, it's, uh, you know, money, 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 uh, money talks, obviously, and uh, it's something, uh, it's difficult uh, to comprehend for some of the fans, but also uh, to attract, you know, young players. Be that as it may, we are done for this edition of Lockdown Football. Again, thank you for joining us. We've got another edition uh, with quite a few Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland stories coming up in the next, oh, I don't know, 24, 48 hours. Um, until then, uh, thank you to Stefan Joni, Mark Rodden and Dimitro Zulai. As usual, if you have a chance, please like us. Please, please like us and rate us and all the usual. And until next time, it is goodbye.